Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 331, Captain Pouch. First of all, an apology, since Barbara caught me with my fingers in the till of guessing and not checking. It's about Christopher Piggott MP's remark last time that the Scots hadn't let any of their kings die in their beds. And I was correct in saying that Piggott was in fact stretching a point, but rather wrong in the detail. So... Here is the situation. James I of Scotland was assassinated in a sewer in 1437. So, tick, he gets a picket point. James II, though, was killed by exploding artillery, so no picket points. James III was killed in battle with his son, so tick, he gets a picket point. James IV died at Falloden, killed by the English, unfortunately, and James V, it was, that died of disappointment after losing the Battle of Solway Moss. So actually, James IV, James V, get reverse picket points, leaving us with a net score of zero picket points. I hope that's cleared things up. Now, we were talking, I believe, a couple of episodes ago about Robert Cecil and about libels an aspect of the growing public space and culture. And I think we also talked about the fact that James I and VI coveted Burley's grand mansion at Tybalds and persuaded his son to swap Tybalds for the much smaller Hatfield house. I can't be entirely sure that persuaded is the correct word, but it'll have to do for the moment. Anyway, there's a libel that ties these things together. 
and also introduces us to the subject of today's episode. And here is a bit of it. It's rumoured to have been written by Walter Raleigh. Yes, that Walter Raleigh. Here lies, throne for the worms to eat, little bossy Robin that was so great. Not Robin Goodfellow, nor Robin Hood, but Robin the Encloser of Hatfield Wood. When little Robin Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, arrived at his new property of Hatfield, he obviously wanted to create elegant parkland and a hunting preserve. All there was when he arrived was a great park with extensive woodland. In common with much of royal land, the great woods of the park had a lot of common rights over them and were indulgently and loosely managed. The reason that royal land was managed so loosely was not because the English monarchs were essentially nicer than everyone else, though obviously many of my best friends are ex-monarchs, but because they were, of course, non-resident. The social history of England is littered with examples of how important residency of the landowner could be for life for ordinary people in positive and negative ways. But here, the point is that resident landlords tended to squeeze their tenants much harder. They knew what was going on. They knew where the potential for extra squeeze came from, and they were often dependent for their income from one manor, although Salisbury has multiple landownings. Yet he was still determined to exploit Hatfield to its best advantage. No more Mr Nice Distant Landlord. So, the Great Park at Hatfield was enclosed to create the new park, and the rights of common that the local people had enjoyed were taken away from them. No longer could they collect wood there for fires. Salisbury was already a ruthless enclosure anyway. At Brigstock in 1603, he'd caused a riot by enclosure. On the date of his funeral, locals planned to dig up the fences of the new park in protest against the loss of an important component of their livelihood. But they were rumbled and mainly prevented, though nonetheless some got through and dug up the park's fence to expose it to public view. The creation of parkland was just one of the reasons for enclosure. The creation of deer parks for hunting could be a mighty status symbol as well as meeting the aristocratic passion for hunting, but it could have a very painful effect on local people with the removal of those common rights. However, the kind of enclosure that really got people worked up was the enclosure and removal of open fields, which included often the conversion of tillage into pasture. It is an interesting topic, which we have covered before, but it is very important for ordinary folk, so it's time to look at the latest iteration. Because it throws up a lot of interesting attitudes in society of tensions and rather cuts across firmly held historical truths. So, one of those historical truths that we're going to consider is about the triumph of Tudor governance over the common populace and the apparent ending of the tradition of rural protest. So, here's the story. The story goes that the Tudors faced unusually fierce popular protest during their long century on the throne, from the Cornish in 1497, to the Pilgrimage of Grace, to the Commotion Time 
1549 and the Rising of the North in 1569, but that the guns of popular protest had been spiked by the end of Elizabeth's reign. The economic success of the middling sort, yeomen and husbandmen, took them away from leadership of local peasant protest. And meanwhile, Elizabethan society had a mania for order, for social harmony, for mutual ties that made riot and disorder unthinkable. And so, to set against commotion time, the best that the last years of Elizabeth's reign could muster, a time of terrible dearth, was the abortive Oxfordshire Rebellion. A rebellion so feeble it hardly got a mensch in the History of England podcast. And let me tell you, you have to be pretty feeble not to get a mensch in the History of England podcast. This story about late Tudor social harmony rather ignores then the events in the Midlands of England in 1607, which also throws up some interesting social attitudes. I speak, ladies and gentlemen, of the Midlands rising, a series of disturbances caused by dearth and enclosure. The attitude of the English monarchs and indeed government towards enclosure and protest was oddly ambivalent. I mean, you will have in your mind the great executions of the Tudor state, Henry VII's repression of the Cornish Rebellion, the 200 executed from the Pilgrimage of Grace under Henry VIII, Edward VI and the Mousehold Rebels, Mary's bloody killing of 150 of Thomas Wyatt's rebels, Elizabeth's 600 rebels killed after the Northern Rising, rather showing that windows into souls were one thing, but for rebels, windows into guts, lungs and bowels were rather more de rigueur. Every Tudor monarch had their record of vicious reprisals against enemies of the state and treated the poor who rebelled against their authority with pretty consummate certainty. And yet, when it came to enclosure and popular protests of that sort, they also had some sympathy, as did Parliament, in fact. Parliament which was stuffed with landowners, many of whom would prove ardent enclosures. But there are a series of acts from Parliament which demonstrated the great and the good saw enclosure as the work of the devil, as a great threat to society and social harmony. So starting off with Wolsey in 1519, Wolsey, who was most certainly not shy of making a bob or two, but acts flowed in the 16th century throughout to try to prevent the conversion of tillage into pasture. Because enclosure changed the structure of society, Enriching some, impoverishing others. It led to depopulation, throwing people off the land. It increased vagabondage, against which society had been legislating since the 15th century. The latest example was the Tillage Act of 1563, trying to prevent landlords from converting ploughs to sheep. Yet nothing seemed to work. The march of enclosure was relentless. It wasn't always led by large-scale landowners. It might be the local peasantry who wanted it, if they were renting land like yeomen and husbandmen. But it was led by landholders of some type, most certainly. So, just to demonstrate the impotence of government in the face of this large-scale economic and social change, in 1593 Elizabeth's Parliament threw up their hands and repealed the Tillage Act 
1563. It really is a theme. You can legislate all you like, but economics almost always trumps politics. Within four years of 1593, they'd changed their mind again. Francis Bacon found the whole thing about enclosure absolutely horrifying. He criticised those lords who had converted land to pasture. He lamented the decay in tillage. His new bill into Parliament ordered that land that had been converted to pasture during Elizabeth's reign should revert to tillage. And it also banned any further conversion of land to pasture. Walter Raleigh actually fought against the bill and we get an early free trade argument that would one day become such a feature of English economic policy. Parliament should, he wrote, set corn free and leave every man free, which is the desire of a true Englishman. But Salisbury, of all people, who would soon be busy enclosing common woods for deer parks, was more principled when it came to tillage Whoever doth not maintain the plough destroys the kingdom. It has to be said that although Francis Bacon's act did pass, the whole process was not terribly dignified with lots of arguing and claims for exemptions. And anyway, the 1593 repeal of the 1563 Act had rather given a green light to enclosing landlords and in the four years the genie had put a bit of weight on and couldn't be squeezed back into his bottle. Meanwhile, as you know, the 1590s were a time of terrible harvest and dearth poor folk were suffering. Inflation eroded real wages, prices rose, a growing population meant there was less work, times were hard. These hard times extended into places into the 1600s too. So in 1604, the MP for Northamptonshire, Sir Edward Montague, stood up and told the Commons that the cry of the country was vehemently against depopulation and daily excessive conversion of tillage into pasture. Much of the English Midlands, though open champion land, lay on heavy, hard-to-work clay soil. I know this because if I had 10p for every time my father explained that the amusing shape and size of the carrots from his veg patch was due to the heavy constitution of his soil, I would have well over £42.50. So, when the Tillage Acts had been repealed in 1593, the local Midlands gentry with eyes of green had gone whiffling through the tolgy open fields and left pasture as they came. For sheep for fattening cattle for higher rent. Bacon's 1597 Act, Montague's complaint in 1604, neither appears to have had any impact on this. Those enclosures kept right at it. By 1607, the people of large swathes of the Midlands had seen enough, and they could take no more. On April the 30th, the Earl of Shrewsbury was writing about trying to prevent disturbances in Derbyshire. The following day came the first recorded trouble, coinciding with May Eve. Probably no coincidence, since as a festival it brought people together, and together they could share their anger and make plans. Across Warwickshire, Northamptonshire, Leicestershire, there were reports of large crowds gathering, of thousands of people. 3,000 at Hillmorton, 5,000 at Cotsback in Leicestershire. Maybe what converted anger and resentment into action was the appearance of a person to lead them, a person with charisma and determination. 
John Reynolds was the man's name, but he was better known to the people of the Midlands as Captain Pouch. He acquired the name because he had the cunning to put on the mantle of authority in both divine and regal form. He carried a large leather pouch with him. Within the pouch, the captain claimed lay an object, sufficient matter to defend them against all comers. Not just that, but he claimed that in this present work he was directed by the Lord of Heaven. So, mystical powers, divine authority. Still, Reynolds realised that that wasn't enough, so he claimed also to have been given authority from the king to throw down enclosures. As far as they were concerned, enclosing landlords were dangerous innovators, enemies not only of the people, but of the state. And people might well have believed Captain Pouch when he said that the king was on their side. After all, Parliament had passed all those laws, and despite all the evidence of a century of Tudor executions, many still had a touching faith that the king was on their side. He was father of the people. It's just that the truth was hidden from him by evil counsellors. Once he knew, he'd come to save them and put their oppressors to the sword. It was a view that was not quite correct, though it was marginally less far from the truth than you might think. Anyway, the riots spread, and it seems that the protesters might have horrified the gentry, but they had the su- solid support of the local people, including those that might well have taken a different view in the town. So when they heard about the rising, the people of the local towns came out to help. After the Midland Rising, there was an investigation, and so we have a gift from that investigation, the words of the powerless, so little recorded normally. And one of them recorded that they were generally relieved by near inhabitants who sent them not only many carts laden with victuals, but also a good store of spades and shovels for their present enterprise. The Earl of Huntingdon, Lord Lieutenant of Leicestershire, was outraged at this sign of class solidarity. So he acted according to his idiom and erected a gibbet in Leicester to discourage the townspeople from offering any more support. So nothing daunted, the townspeople tore the gibbet down. Huntingdon threw a shoe and imprisoned the mayor and fined the corporation, all of which sounds satisfyingly the right way round somehow. So look, You've got these very large gatherings of ordinary people. What are they actually doing and what precisely are they complaining about and why? What do they understand about their situation? Well, as the movement developed from its May Eve start in early June 1607, Gilbert Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, reported that about a thousand men and women had begun busily digging in enclosures at Newton, a village three miles north of Kettering in Northamptonshire. Shrewsbury contemptuously described them as a tumultuous rabble. But very interestingly, he noted that they called themselves levellers. Now that, apparently, might be the very first use of a term that would become super popular for a political movement in the Civil War. What context it's being used in here would be interesting to know. It's not at all clear that it's the social and political context for which it will become known in the Civil War. But anyway, the term is being used. Because Shrewsbury also described them as diggers, another term that would acquire a lot of baggage in the time of the Civil War, 
but here it appears to be mainly practical in both terms. These groups across the Midlands were actually levelling the hedges, chopping them down, digging the newly created pastures, trying to recover the tilled land and open fields that had been lost. The violence they offered, however, appeared to be largely restricted to property, hedges and fences, not to people. So Captain Pouch specifically instructed his followers, we're told, not to swear, not to offer violence to any person, but to ply their business and make fair works. It is a feature of the Tudor rebellions. The orderliness of the rebels is in rather stark contrast to the violence that will sometimes be inflicted on them by their so-called betters. However, the diggers were quite convinced that their lives and their livelihood were all in danger and that their betters in this case were not acting for the common good. So they accused them as encroaching tyrants that would grind our flesh on the whetstone of poverty and that they acted not for the benefit of the commonalty but only for the private gain of those who had depopulated and overthrown whole towns and made thereof sheep pastures, nothing profitable for our commonwealth. The diggers were clear about what the consequences of these enclosures would be and they were quite sophisticated about what they would be. They complained about the extinction of common rights, that their landlords would then raise rents and rent rack them, that the, the tradition of hospitality would disappear, villages would be depopulated and poverty increase, that with sheep also came an increase in the price of corn. Striking was their conviction that the king would help their true-hearted commonality because they explicitly condemned enclosure in the idiom of tyranny as a crime committed by a propertied class who had little respect for the king's law and still less for their conventional social obligations. The idea of social order we, we discussed earlier in early modern England was supposed to mean reciprocal responsibilities by all orders of society. There were other commentators as well as those involved who commented on the Midland Rising and one of them was a clergyman. Robert Wilkinson was his name and his attitude is really interesting. As you might expect, as a member of the establishment, the very idea of disobedience, insurrection and the overturning of social order was abhorrent to him. And he's not hanging around in his language, writing that the vile dared to presume against the honourable and appalled that the ruler of three kingdoms was obliged to capitulate with a tinker, namely Captain Pouch. But after that expression of disgust at social disorder, his criticism then fell very much actually on those who'd put aside their responsibilities and exploited their position and instead acted from greed and oppression. He wrote that they should have recognised that at a time of dearth, without their help, the violence of the poor came from necessity and therefore overrode the requirement to submit to social order. The belly saith that bread must be had, and the soul subscribeth that bread must be had too, 
and though reason may persuade and authority command and preachers may exhort with obedience and patience to sustain the want of bread. Essentially, enclosure and dearth had provoked this rebellion and the landowners were to blame for failing in their responsibilities to support them and foresee it. At the end of the day, though, it is the lover of order that won out, which is typical for Elizabethan England and clergymen. And the consequences of rebellion, however provoked, must be the judicial carnage which so often followed. Better one or a few to be punished than a whole kingdom hazarded. Another commentator was Francis Bacon. Now, it might be expected that Francis Bacon, as a leading lawyer and member of the King's Court, would be straightforwardly and wholesomely against the very idea of rebellion, whatever the cause. But actually, as we have heard, Bacon was heartily against enclosure, and his attitude also was sympathetic to the Midlanders. It even sounds slightly socialist with his warning that the treasure and monies in a state be not gathered into few hands. Money is like muck, not good, except it be spread. There is one more commentator we might refer to, or there may be one more according to Steve Hindle, and that commentator was none other than Billy the Bard, Shakespeare himself. In Coriolanus, I am told, and I have no personal knowledge of this, so I take it on trust from Professor Hindle, a character called the First Citizen apparently has a bit of a hack at the patrician class, accusing them of holding the plebs as of little consequence and forcing them to hunger and rebellion, precisely because the boards of the wealthy groan with excess. And this echoes the Warwickshire diggers, Warwickshire being, of course, William Shakespeare's hood, who complained that the enclosing landlords were relishing the sweetness of our wants, rather than fasting in order to taste the dearth out of compassion for their poorer neighbours, the wealthy were still enjoying a lifestyle which was only made possible by exploitation of the poor. Essentially, this misery was a false famine. It was caused only by the excesses of the rich. So concludes the first citizen. Let us revenge this with our pikes, ere we become rakes. This, my friend, is social revolution indeed, and according to Professor Steve, directly attributable to the reports, publications and broadsheets around the 1607 and 1608 Midland Rising and Dearth. Billy the Bard, socialist and fighter for social justice. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, back to the actual events then. There seems little doubt that what happened in the Midlands in 1607 was caused by a combination of population growth, high prices of corn leading to dearth and the danger of famine, 
and depopulation caused by enclosure. Captain Pouch was one of the first to go. Although the English state had no police force and relied on the unreliable, notably the locally trained bands, eventually the act was placed together. At the start of June, there was a clash at Withybrook in Warwickshire and Captain Pouch was taken. Inside his pouch, rather than a sacred object of great mystical power, a chunk of green cheese, delicious and practical no doubt, but the force therein was probably not strong. Though, while we might denigrate mouldy cheese, and indeed there's no doubt that the fine gentleman of Stuart England no doubt did have an unfriendly chuckle at the revelation, if I were to ask my hound, Dylan the dog, I have no doubt he would agree with the good captain that mouldy cheese is indeed worthy of veneration, and that he doth verily so venerate. John Reynolds then, stripped of both his captaincy and his pouch, was sent as the chiefest leader before the Privy Council, and was then sent for exemplary punishment. Not quite sure how exemplary it was, but I guess it might have involved Mr Reynolds being stripped of another pouch. Could be wrong. The action then moved on to Northamptonshire and the little village of Newton, which is near the glittering Cosmopolis, that is Kettering. Northamptonshire was particularly badly affected by enclosure. 27,000 acres had been enclosed, 350 farms removed, over 1,500 people evicted. Now, this was Tresham country, and the Treshams, including the well-known Roman Catholic branch under Francis Tresham, had of course been involved two years earlier in the gunpowder plot, and Francis had died in the Tower of London. Well, when they weren't complaining bitterly about religious oppression and planning to blow people up, the Treshams were busy oppressing their own people. Sir Thomas Tresham was described indeed as the most odious in the country. Now, Tresham of Newton was enclosing common land called the Brand, which had been part of Rockingham Forest. Over a thousand people were at Newton then, digging and levelling, when upturned Edward Montague from Broughton Castle. Now, this is quite ironic, if irony be your thing. Montague was the very MP we talked about standing up in Parliament in 1604 to object to enclosure, to no avail. Montague was part of a Puritan family, had been in dispute for years with the Treshams, but now Montague was the man required to clear up the Tresham mess. Here's how it went. James had by this time issued a proclamation ordering the levellers and diggers to disperse. Montague read out said proclamation to the diggers, who refused to move. And in fact, many later would say that they had resolved to give their lives, come what may, so desperate was their situation. And so they stayed. Montague had joined up with Anthony Mildmay, who lived nearby at a very grand palace called Apethorpe, which is empty now, but visitable by appointment and a wonderful place to go. I went there with the aged M some time ago. Brilliant. Anyway, so there we have two gentlemen facing a thousand determined-looking peasants, calling themselves levellers. Now, Montague and Mildmay did not have a finely armed, highly trained force behind them. The trained bands were still in the process of saying, you what? 
So instead, they had gathered together such servants and tenants as they could find in time-honoured fashion, with, of course, what the levellers did not, crucially, have some horses. Still, Montague and Mildmay begged and pleaded the levellers to leave, but they would not. And so they mounted their special weapon, their horses, and they charged. And yet, with desperation, they were beaten off, and so they charged again. And this time it was too much. Forty to fifty of them were slaughtered. Many more, we do not know how many, were injured. Then there's a local parish register which tells us all we know about the outcome after that. Many were taken prisoners who afterwards were hanged and quartered and their quarters set up at Northampton, Oundle, Thrapston and other places. The Midland Rising was over. Now one person absent from the story so far has been King James, so let us tell his story very briefly. It's a reasonably standard one you'll probably recognise. James had three priorities throughout this business. The first was to get the problem to go away, to get the levellers to disperse. When that didn't work, second up was repression, which he justified with a natty little medical analogy. We are bound, as the head of the politic body of our realm, to follow the course which the best physicians use in dangerous diseases, which is, by a sharp remedy applied to a small and infected part, to save the whole from dissolution and destruction. And thus Montague, Mildmay, servants, horses, charge. The third priority, though, to give him his due, was to redress the grievance. And so, moved by what he described slightly pompously as Christian compassion for those subjects who, being likewise touched with this grief, avoided the like offences, and by princely care and providence to preserve our people from decay or diminution. Sir James set up a commission which investigated and gave us the voice of the levellers and diggers that we've heard, and which, to be fair, did prosecute several gentlemen of enclosure in the Star Chamber, including one Thomas Tresham, who, however, was never in danger of losing his pouch over the affair. James also then offered a pardon for any rebels still at large, but there's a sting in the tail. As far as James was concerned, despite the enclosures, despite the prosecutions, despite what the diggers and the levellers had said, he was clear that rebellion was unjustified. Because, he said, there was no evidence of necessity of famine or dearth of corn, nor indeed any other extraordinary accident that might stir or provoke the labouring poor to rise. This, of course, was not the contention of the rebels, and we might suspect their information was a little more immediate and better founded. And incidentally, burials on the parish registered had soared in 1606-7, just before all this action took place. And then, by June 1608, the increase in sheep had indeed led to an increase in the price of corn, just as they had predicted, up by 30%. 
so the government was forced to issue dearth orders to regulate the price of corn. So look, the Midlands Rising is not an event of the scale of the Tudor rebellions, but it's interesting. It is a sharp point in the continuing story of enclosure, economic change, the social change it engendered, and the enormous pressures on the social fabric. And just the plain old, honest-to-goodness, suffering of it all. I mean, I'm livid about a number of fences our local landowner has seen fit to put up and would love to level them myself. I'm livid about the lack of a right to roam in England. But seriously, it's a first world problem. I am not in danger of famine. I can feel the pain, fury and helplessness of the diggers and levellers as the very basis of their livelihood was torn apart. Not sure if it's a helpful parallel, but I am put in mind of the peerless Scottish historian Sir Tom Devine, who has written, amongst many other things, about the Scottish enclosures. We hear often, frequently, and with entirely justifiable fury, about the Highland enclosures. It is a national lament exceeding even Culloden, so painful that the English are, of course, held to blame, even though we were nowhere near the place, wasn't me, gov. But Tom Devine's point is that lowland Scots had been through the very same pain just over a longer period. The same applies in England. Enclosure happened over centuries, though culminating in the late 18th century, but it caused enormous pain, destitution, poverty and death nonetheless. Just to leaven the bread of outrage, though, I should repeat, as I've covered before, that although in the Midland Rising the cause was the work largely of large landowners, this was by no means always the case with enclosure projects. In many of those projects, villagers did have agency and involvement and even initiative to make them happen. The other reflection, I think, is the network of deference and social obligation under which early modern society functioned. The responses of the participants are really interesting. The diggers and levellers not only facing famine and dearth, they are betrayed. They expect a certain behaviour from those up in the hierarchy, and they don't get it. They take action in levelling the fences in a horrid parody of what the king should be enforcing his kingdom's law. This is not a class war, because as yet class isn't seen in that way, but this is social betrayal, the breaking of a sacred contract. The response of those in authority is fascinating. The super-rich, and men like Tresham by any scale were super-rich, who yet destroy their society's concept of the Commonwealth in pursuit of yet more cash, while complaining about their own oppression at the same time. Though a kinder way, I guess, might be to see them, in a degree, as the victims of large-scale economic forces forced by prices, population and change to defend their position in society, which they are expected to maintain. You can choose which explanation you prefer, maybe a bit of both. The clergyman and the lawyer, Wilkinson and Bacon, were horrified by the plight of the people. And yet, in the end, stability, social order, trump all. Still, you can see, I guess, from these crises that there was inherent in English society the kind of social pressures which once historians believed were deeply submerged under an accepted social contract 
and belief in the common weal, the health of society is the health of the body, order, structure and absence of conflict. Social pressures which would emerge in a dramatic flowering during the civil wars. Okay, well, I am very sure you'll all be a bit cross with how much time I have spent on the Midland Rising. More, I think, than I spent on the Pilgrimage of Grace. Sorry about that. But it's always important when the Midlands, which, of course, after the Golden Crescent of Mesopotamia, is the second cradle of civilization, emerges from the gloom of history into the light. I'll try not to warble on too much about enclosure again. Well, for a while anyway. However, I did think maybe we'd have a quick weekly word since we've mentioned diggers and levellers because they are very famous names which derive from the civil wars. They have remained strong in our consciousness and probably gained in power, I suspect, as our values have become much closer to some of those which they supported, views which at the time seemed unbelievably radical and which yet, from the story you've just heard about from the Midlands Rising, had fertile soil from which to grow. So, Shrewsbury's use of the term leveller was probably its first use, as we have heard, although it probably related to the levelling of fences, yet it obviously had radical connotation even then. This was violent protest, a demand for equality and equity, and, albeit in the levellers of Northamptonshire's view, the implementation of the King's Law. Like so many names that become an accepted and proud positive part of a group's identity, like Tory and Whig, most famously, the term started as an insult. The next printed use of the term came from the pen of a pamphleteer, Marchmont Needham, the author of the newspaper Mercurius Pragmaticus, a man who wrote for both sides in the Civil War, so much so that he had then become described as Cromwell's press agent. Anyway, in 1644, Marchmont declared sarcastically that our levellers now exclaim against Parliament, reusing the term again. By 1647, the term was in wider use. A newsletter declared, They have given themselves a new name, viz. Levellers, for they intend to set all things straight and raise a parity and community in the kingdom. The name continued and continues to mean something still. After the Glorious Revolution, another commentator used it again as a criticism. I see you are an everlasting leveller. You won't allow any encouragement to extraordinary industry and merit. Much later, the term appears again in a revolutionary context. In 18th century Ireland, a secret agrarian organisation fought the forces of property on the side of tenant farmers. There's a very strong parallel with our Midland Rising, actually, in objecting to rent racking and tearing down fences to support traditional subsistence farming. But there's an Irish context, of course. They also objected to tithes, the imposition of an annual fee for an alien Protestant church. In 1763, news sheets reported that the mischiefs committed by those people called levellers in the county of Tipperary, by levelling park walls, breaking down fences, etc. More commonly, though, in Ireland they were called white boys because of the white smocks they wore over their clothing during their nightly raids. By the end of the 18th century, they had been repressed. 
Shrewsbury also refers to the diggers at Newton, digging to level the land again for tillage. And that theme of levelling the land would reappear in more radical form later in the Civil War, when Gerald Wynne Stanley furiously declared that the people had been robbed of their inheritance in the land, appealing back to a golden age before the hated Normans came. The report was read in London that one Everard and two more, all living at Cobham, came to St George's Hill in Surrey and began to dig on that side of the hill next to Camp Close and sowed the ground with parsnips and carrots and beans. It is true to say, I think, that there is no greater symbol of English liberty than the noble parsnip, although I imagine parsnip is merely a metaphor for all root vegetables. They then wrote to the commander of the parliamentary armies, the diggers, to His Excellency the Lord Fairfax, the brotherly request of those that are called diggers, showeth that whereas we have begun to dig upon the commons for a livelihood, first, for the righteous law of creation that gives the earth freely to one as well as another. The reputation and influence of the diggers also lives on. It became more recently a name for hippie communities. In 1969, The Guardian reported on the words of a member of the London Diggers, who describes his group as communal hippies, non-violent, basically, and non-authoritarian. And I'm told they appeared in San Francisco in the 1960s to boot. So there we go. The Midland Rising points us to the future, ladies and gentlemen, but we have James to dig with first. And it is his story we shall continue with next time when we return to politics and Salisbury's attempt to solve the essential insolvency of the English state with something called the Great Contract. Until then, have a wonderful time. And for Christmas, or just generally, you might consider that some are born members of the history of England, some achieve membership, and others have membership thrust upon them. And if you would like to thrust a membership on someone, there is an easy way to buy it as a gift on thehistoryofengland.co.uk. It costs but a bauble of £40 a year for over 85 hours of scintillating podcasts and up to 90 minutes fresh content every month. Either way, thanks for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great Sen night. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.